Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Tonight on The Breakdown, we sit down with a sharp-elbowed political consultant whose nicknames include the Master of Disaster. That's right. I guess former consultant now. Chris Lehane worked for Al Gore's ill-fated presidential campaign in 2000 and headed up the anti-impeachment war room for Bill Clinton. And like a lot of Democratic political operatives, he's in the private sector these days working his magic for Airbnb. We'll talk to them about all that stuff. Yes. But first, Scott, um, I would say that this week has not the impeachment sort of train madness of the news cycle has not slowed down at all. And really, as from the beginning, Californians have been at the center of this. We have seen, of course, Nancy Pelosi make that drive in the train, drive in the train, conducting the symphony, as as it will. Um, Adam Schiff heading up intelligence. Uh, Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy. Let's start with that. Let's start so, with that. Yeah, 60 Minutes, Sunday night, uh, there was that moment where he's being interviewed by Scott Pelley. And, you know, of course, Pelley has the transcript from the call uh, between Trump and the edited transcript, shall we say. And uh, he quotes from it, and uh, McCarthy accuses him of, like, putting well, let's listen an to extra that. We word actually, into yeah, it. Yeah, let's, let's, let's listen to yeah. that. We have that. What do you make of this exchange? President Zelensky says we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. And President Trump replies, I would like you to do us a favor, though. Well, you just added another word. No, it's in the transcript. You said, I'd like you to do a favor, though? Yes, it's in the the White House transcript. So, I mean, I think that this speaks to some of the challenges Republicans are having defending this. He was not interested in actually talking about the substance right. of that He wanted question. to change the subject. And also, he hadn't done his homework or he wasn't briefed very well. So, you know, one or the other or both. Uh, it's kind of hard to believe. It's not a long transcript. It's not a long transcript. Uh, let's not forget Kevin McCarthy was on the speaker track a few years ago when the Republicans had the majority and uh, had the temerity to tell the truth about the Benghazi hearings and said they were really intended to bring Hillary's poll numbers down, and they worked. So, you know, just maybe not quite as uh, fast on his feet, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, as but he it, needs to be. yeah. And then, of course, today he fired off a letter, a letter to Nancy Pelosi asking why they haven't taken a full House vote on the impeachment inquiry. She uh, slapped she back. Said, well, we don't quickly. have to. We don't have to. And also, the letter came through as Trump was on national television now urging China, China to, to get involved. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I think you know we're gonna we'll talk with our guest Chris Lahane about this. Uh, he I think probably has PTSD from the uh, Clinton impeachment years. Uh, uh, but, you know, there is a sense of uh, of disarray, I would have to say, not just in the White House generally, but specifically around this. They're having trouble 
uh, figuring out what their talking points are. And part of it is because the president, you know, he he steps on his own message all the time. Right. And I think that that's like the crux of this. And, and we can talk about the difference between how Clinton's administration handled their own problems. And but I mean, the key difference is that they kind of tried to leave the president out of it. And I think that Trump just can't help himself. And you see this with his attacks. Now he's going after Schiff, like, you know, the mild mannered prosecutor from L.A. is a uh, shifty Schiff. <laughs> It's, it's so interesting, though. He still hasn't gotten a nickname that he's he's really happy with for Nancy Pelosi, or well, as he calls her, Nancy. Yeah, and he's really not been attacking her as much as other members of Congress. And I, and I think that's interesting, and I think it speaks to the grudging respect that it seems like he and many people in his administration have for her, and an understanding that she is good at this game. I mean, you're in my wheelhouse now, yeah, is yeah, what, exactly. her quote. There was uh, also, we were watching earlier and making fun of uh, the SNL, uh, the impeachment town hall that opened up the show, uh, the season opener on Saturday night, and Maya Rudolph did an amazing take on Kamala Harris. It was really good. Pretty funny. Uh, she portrayed herself as the fun aunt, or as I call myself, Funt. And Kamala, you know, which I think is, speaks to what one of her strengths, really used it this week. Cool she played off of it. She talked about it, saying, I want to give Maya Rudolph years and years of uh, job security by getting <laughs> elected president. Um, yeah, I mean, on the presidential race, uh, Scott, we know that all, most of the candidates had already come out in favor of this impeachment inquiry before Pelosi moved. But they have not been talking about it a lot. I think they've all been focused on their message. Yeah, and, they, and I think uh, quite that's smart. You know, why let why get in the way of what's happening currently within the Republican Party? And, you know, I think looking back at the midterm elections, the consensus was that Democrats did well by focusing on health care right. and other bread and butter issues. And I think you're seeing all the candidates just kind of maybe make a reference. Biden a little bit different because he's part of the story, uh, which, you know, we can we were talking earlier, like, you know, even though he's been sort of cleared and he and his son, Hunter, of uh, any wrongdoing, it, it does kind of muddy yeah, you get painted and, with a brush when you are yeah. brought up in the same sentence every time corruption in Ukraine brings up. And I don't think that's good for him. Now, one person who's had a good week uh, on many on top of other good weeks is Elizabeth Warren. We saw a third poll in as many weeks having her ahead of the pack in California, very closely followed by Biden and Sanders. She's in San Diego Thursday night tonight. And we just heard that she got um, big a endorsement. Good endorsement. Pretty yeah. good endorsement. Lorena Gonzalez, a powerful assemblywoman from San Diego, has come out for her sort big of labor, big labor uh, person, maybe uh, carried that bill AB5 uh, for the gig workers. Uh, and someone who, you know, shows maybe perhaps a little tiny bit of a crack in the California wall for Kamala Harris. Uh, and, you know, and perhaps even more importantly for Elizabeth Warren, a couple things. Uh, well, Bernie Sanders' health, uh, you know, it, news that he had had a couple of stents put into his heart. And again, she things seem to be, you know, coming together for her in some ways at this point. Now, no right. one's voted yet. Let's not forget about that. President Howard Dean, you know. Uh, but uh, you have to say that uh, she's running a very smart campaign. And, uh, and we haven't even heard what her fundraising numbers are. Uh, Kamala Harris raised, I think, 11 uh, million. Buttigieg raised uh, 19 million. Bernie Sanders, 25. So we're waiting to hear yet from from Elizabeth Warren, you got to so think it's a pretty big So interesting, you know, number. to see someone like Bernie Sanders, you know, all small donors raising $25 million and then Joe Biden bringing in 15 I mean, the script has flipped so much in the past four years around fundraising. Um, anyway, well, let's bring in our guest. He's we, chomping at the bit. We've been talking about he Trump's looks very relaxed, actually. We want to talk about Clinton's now. Uh, Chris Lehane is a longtime political consultant, senior vice president for global policy and communications for Airbnb. 
Welcome to The Breakdown, Chris. It's awesome to be here. Uh, you know, I, I missed the old studio, but it's nice to be here. <laughs> we'll be back. Yes, and I guess this is, you know, it's not if Beale Street could talk, right? Beale Street, Beale Street, Street is Blues. listening. Beale Street is talking. <laughs> oh, we're talking. Yes. We're talking. Yes. So awesome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I got to ask. I mean, as we said, you were, God, you were in your 20s, right? When uh, you were pulled into I the Clinton. I a beautiful set of hair. My <laughs> hair was, I had good hair then. <laughs> well, you were pulled into the Clinton White House um, and asked to basically help craft strategies even before really the Lewinsky scandal, um, to, to help defend the president. And I'm just curious, like watching the last couple of weeks unfold, A, are you sad to be out of the game? And B, like what, what do you make of sort of the way this White House is handling it? Yeah, it's uh, I get asked this question, perhaps not surprisingly, an awful lot, particularly over the last, uh, last week or two. And, and I think obviously they're, the, the two different White Houses are handling it very, very differently. Um, but I also think that as you analyze those different approaches, you know, there's been all this conversation of is there going to be a war room? Trump is improvi- you know, imp- improvises. He's, you know, his own one-person focus group, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I also think that the, the nature of our politics, the structure of how this is playing out is really different than it was, you know, way back in 1998. Um, you know, back in 1998, I feel like you know we're like uh, ancient here. Yes, all right. Uh, but but you know, you had a you had a, a you had a, a, no code practically. Yeah, right. I mean, right. I remember my cell phone was a big flip phone. You'd make oh, yeah. two calls. It would be out of batteries. Right. I mean, it was a, just a different environment. And and in particular, the way and the role that um, first of all, I think the role that the media played uh, was was very different. You you know, while I think we were going in the direction of becoming an increasingly polarized country. That hadn't really set in in the same way that it exists today, where you are functionally at a 50-50, call it 49-49 country, right? Like and, just default, basically. Right, right. And so people automatically go to their own corners. They listen to their own outlets. They have their own echo chamber. You know, back in, in, in 1998, there still was um, a media that effectively played that role of a referee or an empire, umpire, right? The traditional role that the fourth estate that all of you you played, and, and, and that doesn't exist today. And so – uh, you don't necessarily – you're not playing by the same rules that existed in 1998. And even even from an electoral perspective, um, you know, although the swing vote cohort had even shrunk at that point in time, there still was a swing vote mm-hmm. cohort that existed. And the mindset of everyone running for office that were genuinely in a competitive election was that you didn't necessarily win by turning out or maximizing your turnout. You won by winning your more than 50 plus 1 percent of that swing vote. And so that just then manifests and translates into a completely different political style. Do you see, you mentioned the echo chamber, do you see echoes though of what's happening now with what uh, happened then in terms of a playbook Mm -hmm. that Bill Clinton used, first denying, buying himself time, trying to- Muddying uh, the waters. You know, the vast right-wing conspiracy, uh, blaming media in some cases. A couple interesting, I think, um, I guess distinctions. I think, first of all, and we can come back to this if if you want, I, I thought it was an interesting decision to release uh, the, 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 the edited transcript as we've described. Interesting right? might be an understatement of but, the century. Because I think, you know, in and this wasn't necessarily, I mean, there's an actual interesting an interesting similarity here, which is, you know, in the early days uh, of the Clinton situation, um, it wasn't like there was really, it, it was still a little bit crazy, right? It wasn't like just war room was existed and it immediately went, you know, went into, uh, you know, went into gear. Um and I think at some level, um, you know, Clinton, President Clinton was such a preternaturally talented politician, really one of the best that, you know, we've seen in our lifetime. And I think there was an, an instinctive understanding that telling the story slowly 
um, was going to be helpful to him. And if everything had just broken really fast, it could have actually you could have actually seen a potentially different dynamic. And in this situation, they actually put this stuff out there really quickly, which I think has actually accelerated some of the dynamics. Well, and clearly he thought, I, I think, yes. I assume that it was going to help him. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think you know, it was I, a perfect conversation, I think they did, which I think is an insight into how people are looking at this and how they think about it. Um, and I also think, again, going to the 50-50 country, right, there's 50 percent of the people that probably look at it in a way that is similar to how he and his team are interpreting it and 50 percent that are looking at it uh, the way Congresswoman Speaker Pelosi and others on the Democratic side you know, are looking at. It. That said, once we sort of got through the initial you know, 48, 72 hours, mm-hmm. you know, we did put in place a real structure. There was a playbook. That playbook began with the concept of really trying to to, to differentiate the public from the personal. Um, that playbook included being incredibly disciplined, you know, organizing, being very comfortable with all the information that was going out, making sure you had answers on that information, making sure that the different people who are going to get caught up into this, you know, had representation and were all part of a larger strategy. And I think, you know, if you watch the Sunday shows, um, last week in the political shows when you know various uh, surrogates went out there. I mean, everyone had a sort of a different message. message. Mm-hmm. There was nothing that was really cohering together. And I do think that one of the uh, uh, sort of elements to watch play out here is, you know, do the Republicans feel like there is a, a floor that they can stand on when they go out there? Um, and I do think- What does that mean? But, but, you know, if you're like, gonna, is, it, is the story going to change again after I say something? Yes. Right. Can you go out there and, and make a representation and feel pretty confident that what you've been given and the talking points that you've been equipped with are going to you know, withstand up. some scrutiny? Right. right. Um, Which they didn't really last week. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, and that therefore you're getting, you know, the, you know, who's willing to go out and speak on your behalf? Are they willing to represent you? And, 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 and that's that that's some of the interesting dynamics to watch. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Chris Lehane. You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. 
Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And our guest today is a former top political consultant, now uh, working for Airbnb, but formerly with Bill Clinton, Al Gore, many other Democrats. Chris Lehane, we're so happy to have you here. Again, it's great to be here. So you, we're going to go back. We, we might come back to impeachment talk, but we want to talk about how you ended up uh, in this that war room. This is the therapy part this of the, the show, right? This is yes, the therapy okay. part. Okay, let's do it. So you were born in Massachusetts. Uh, your grandparents were all all immigrants, is that right? Yeah. Um, Italians, Sicilians, yeah, from different parts of the Sicily. world. Yeah, okay, yeah, different parts. Sicily, of the world. yeah. So, growing up, I know your grandmothers worked in mills. Um, mm-hmm. I think your grandfather, like, like it, it seems like the labor sort of aspect of some of your political leanings was was seated early. Is that fair? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was uh, uh, born and grew up in uh, an area of Massachusetts called Methuen Lawrence, and Lawrence. For anyone who's familiar with labor history in the United States, is one of the centers of where the modern American labor movement grew out of in those textile factories. Um, and then, um, you know, at a relatively young age, moved up um, into Maine. Um, my dad ran uh, Head Start programs, right. and so he went to run uh, went up in Maine, and and it was a you know it was an incredible place to grow up. Um, but yes, uh, you know, I grew up in a family where I think participating. Participating in politics began at a really early age. It was just sort of expected that you would be involved. What, and like what kind of? Engagement? Yeah, well, like when how? you when you you know if, for those who aren't familiar with with Massachusetts, particularly Massachusetts politics, um, you know that was an era where um, you know if you even date back historically, you know people used to get their jobs by you know whether they engaged in politics, right? Um, this is pre my generation, right? But if you were going to become a police officer, a firefighter, you know, a male person, right? You typically were involved in local politics. Interesting. You know, the person precinct who operations. The word, the precinct would then appoint you, and then your family would get involved with that. Um, and so there was a whole sort of cultural uh, component to it. Um, when I came along, that era had sort of you know it wasn't quite quite, but that but there were still vestiges of that and and an expectation. I mean, look, you'd walk in the, in the houses, right, and you'd have John F. Kennedy's photo up there. You'd have the Pope's photo um, and, uh, and an expectation that, you know, if you were a working-class Catholic background, that part of that, you know, you watched Notre Dame football on Saturdays and you would go door-to-door on Saturdays and Sundays, right? I mean, it was, it was just part of how, you, of how you were brought up. And you moved to Kennebunkport, Maine, yes. I believe, which, of course, was where uh, President H.W. Bush yes. lived part of the time yeah. at, a, at a place there. I was actually a bellhop at the hotel where the White House uh, traveling press corps and staff used to stay. And that was in the years that he was when president? He was pre- when he was vice president, yeah. Vice president. And what, what was did, that like? Yeah, like yeah. what did that strike you as in that, at that age? I mean, um, you know, look, I loved history and, 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 you know, at an early age probably over-indexed on being interested in this stuff. I do have this real, uh, it's funny you ask this question, the therapy part here. <laughs> um, I always had this memory. So um, uh, Lee Atwater, uh, who is Bush's top political consultant, you know, famous the, for the Willie Horton, Horton, Horton ad. Yeah. Um, but I remember they actually did um, a debate prep session up in, and I was a bellhop. I remember walking into one of the rooms and all the debate books were there, the prep books were there. And I always remember thinking back like, wow, that could have been a real moment. I didn't do anything. I was, I was, I was, a, I was a very honorable bellhop. But I, uh, <laughs> when did I that remember, change? No, I'm just I'll, kidding. I'll, I'll, I'll flash forward. And then, and then you flash forward to um, – uh, to 1992, and I uh, was on the Clinton campaign. I helped run in a number of places, mm-hmm. including Maine. Um, and um, the night of uh, of the election, um, uh, went down to uh, 
Bush's house, and we put a series of Clinton Gore signs all around the house. On the lawn. On the lawn, <laughs> on the lawn and then called the AP photo wire. Um, and it was the photo that went out. Um, so you're, you're, that's when your dirty tricks started? I, was, I, was, I, was just, I, will, I will also say that um, I mean, I've had the chance to, to actually intersect with, with some members of the Bush family and, um, uh, and have found them to be, you know, obviously very different politically. I come from a very different place. Right. Um, but, but A, knew where I was, where I was from, <laughs> B, knew my background, and C, were really class acts. Well, main politics so, yes. seem like they'd be relatively mm-hmm. genteel, right, or not? Uh, I wouldn't say genteel. I, I think that uh, – I think Maine has, um, has produced some incredible talent, whether it's Margaret Chase Smith, right, one of the first women senators, um, Ed Muskie, uh, George Mitchell – um, has a history of being an independent place, right? As goes Maine, so goes the nation. Mm-hmm. Although that really isn't necessarily the case, but 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 that was the image. But you know, the politics in 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 Maine really did break down to, you know, working class mill towns uh, that were populated by those working class people, um, uh, and they were known as the mill towns. And on the other side were the shire towns, and the shire towns were the towns that were typically upwind from the mills. Um, and, um, you know, people played politics uh, for keeps there. I mean, because yeah. it, it meant an awful lot about what type of life you'd have. And I'll tell you a little story. There's a town called Bitterford, Maine. We were talking earlier about, um, you know, how people grew up in that particular time. Bitterford, Maine is a working class mill town. Um, it had the single highest turnout in the 1960 presidential election because the parish priest made you show up for mass on Sunday with your vote stub. To vote for JFK. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Vote for JFK. Sorry, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. First, so, <laughs> Catholic, first Catholic president. Yeah. Yes. Right, right, right. Well, so we mentioned earlier that you were in this war room and, you yeah. know, that you've worked you worked on that stuff. But the other thing that you've been known for in campaigns, mm-hmm. I think, is opposition research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just curious, like, how did you come to that? And is that something you like? Because I feel like there's a lot of people in politics that sort of clutch their pearls and say, oh, well, you know, we pl- we do campaigns because we have to do it. And the, and the governing is the real work, but yeah. you seem to sort of relish the fight in a way. Well, I think that, um, I mean, it's a little bit like if you're going to go play in the NFL, you've got to be able to take a hit to be able to be a successful player, right? If you're a major league baseball player, you have to be able to hit the inside pitch. Um, and um, I'm not going to suggest that you know our electoral process is perfect, but it's, it's, it's the best one, that, at least democracy and getting elected in the way that our system has been designed is the best one that I've seen out there. And the best thing that prepares you to be an effective elected official is can you withstand the rigors of a campaign? I always used to say that your single hardest day in a presidential campaign will be your single easiest day as president. And now you have to do like oppo research on yourself. Oh, yeah. Too, right? well, I mean, that's like the first thing you do. Before. Yes, that's the first so question. So did you, did you see the oppo research on Clinton in 92? Uh, yeah, I mean, we had uh, the campaign had extensive information. Um, obviously, I think one of the things that you always go through, whatever campaign you're working on, you know, is are you getting everything that is out there, right? Um, uh, and oftentimes, without naming names, I've certainly represented candidates and and folks where you present them information. And people's memories sometimes would be very short, uh, or or, <laughs> I didn't do that. or 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 very flawed. Um, but but that is part of I think the process of of being you know of being able to run and and then in effect I do think I, I really do believe um, that you know your ability to govern and your ability to be a successful elected official is 
best tested by can you handle a campaign. Totally. Well, I'm curious about that. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like, as you noted, politics have changed over the last 20 years here. And I wonder, okay, so mm-hmm. if you hear folks in the Obama campaign talk, they say that the Reverend Jeremy Wright thing breaking in the primary was the best thing that ever happened sure. to Obama because it was all done with by the time they got Old to news. the general. Well, and he handled it really yes. well. Yeah. Yes. But I'm curious, like, do you think that that's that that is the same this cycle given Trump and and the unique sort of place he represents like is it better for because we haven't seen a lot of dirtying up yet mm-hmm. among the democrats no i th- you know i think that obviously as you get closer to you know the caucus and then and then after that that the new hampshire primary i think you're going to start to get some Jostling, uh, jostling, and and conflict because people are going to have to separate themselves uh, and have to make some type of a of a move here. Um, uh, look, is I, that I think, good or bad? I guess is. I think I think you have to get. I, I think if you want a candidate that's going to emerge, test it. Right, your example on Obama. Obama was a better candidate because of how intense the race was between he and. Um, and the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, um, he would not have been as good a candidate, but for having gone through that process. And you know, the back and forth in the Democratic primary is going to be like thumb wrestling compared to what the general election is going to look like. And so, if you're a Democrat out there, you want someone whose medal has been truly tested and information vetted. I actually think one of the keys to the success that Elizabeth Warren has had so far, and I think this has been un- underreported, is she got knocked to the deck early on. Pocahontas thing. Got herself up, dusted herself off, and came back stronger. And and that's kind of a distant memory now. It, not only is that distant memory, but it shows that she has that hard to define, but you know it when you see it. What it takes quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you think that's a dead issue now? Um, I think that um, obviously, if she makes it as the nominee in the general election, it will be something that 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 the the Republicans will use. But I think by having dealt with it, even though she was criticized at the time for having dealt with it, uh, she has dealt with it. And it is, it is now a different kind of issue than it would be if she was dealing with it for the first time. And that took like that took some guts to go out there and do it. And it also shows that she's a pretty damn good candidate. Like she figured all of that stuff out there when everyone was giving her grief for yeah, having I mean, done that. It seemed like a mistake at the time. Right, and you're going to look back if she is a nominee and say that was a really smart move. Yeah. You, of course, worked on the 2000 yeah. Gore campaign yep. mm-hmm. as well, which was like such a crazy yep. ending. You know, the election night, he conceded, then he yes. pulled it back. And then we yes, had I always him. say that he didn't lose. He just wasn't sworn in. <laughs> <laughs> or as he said, you win some, you lose some. And then there's that third category. <laughs> yes. uh, but, you know, what, what was your takeaway from that in terms of like, are there things that you would have done differently, for example, especially after. Oh, sure. Well, the mean, recount was happening. Right, you, you, you. Or go, wasn't happening. You go through a process like that, and you know, with with a razor thin difference, and you can think of a thousand different things. I'll tell you the one that that keeps me up at night. There's always that one that keeps you up at mm-hmm. night. Um, you know, but and I'm doing this number off the top of my head. But we ended up losing New Hampshire like by 600 votes. Mm. And um, and we had had an opportunity to do our debate prep in New Hampshire. And because the campaign didn't have the same resources as Bush, we had to pull all of our TV money down. And so we had pulled out of New Hampshire in terms of our TV spend. And if we had done the debate prep in New Hampshire, the three or four days of free press that you would have gotten would have been the equivalent of a month's worth of, of buying television, particularly in that time period. And you know, if we had won New Hampshire, then it's not even you know. You wouldn't have won the electoral. And, that, and, that, and that's always like it just you know because I I say this I've said this to to my kids I I don't think a a day goes by 
when I, and this is really full therapy, you've got me going here. <laughs> a day does not go by when I do not think about how different the world would be. Yeah. Um, you know, I look at the issue of climate um, in particular. Iraq war. Um, I look at the wars that have taken place. Um, and, you know, uh, Al Gore would have been the exact right person to have been in that office at that moment in time. And when 9-11 would have taken place, he would have responded the right way. But he also would have instantaneously known it was the one moment we had to really make a fundamental shift in terms of our energy policy. And so it's hard not to think about that all the time, given everything. Is, I mean, right. it is one of those ultimate sliding door moments, right? You go in a different direction. Let me ask you, like, in, in we have a few minutes left, but like, sure. you know, during the recount, during the sort of court of public opinion, you know, shifting. We saw the Brooks Brothers riots in yep. Florida. Uh, well, Democrats sent sort of more talking heads. And mm -hmm. I think the Gore campaign tried to hold back a little. I understand maybe you had some different muzzled. advice. <laughs> but I just wonder, does that speak to a difference among the parties to this day where like Republicans are kind of willing to just go bare knuckles and Democrats are sometimes a lot more careful? And is that a problem for them? Well, I think the way I, I, I look at it is, is, is I Look, I'm a Democrat. It's where I come out of, um, uh, and you know, I'm trying to be careful about not being overly partisan, even though knowing the, <laughs> the audience I'm talking <laughs> to here. But um, I, you know, I do think that um, you know ultimately uh, Democrats do believe in liberal democracy, you know, a progressive view of government, progressive defined as you use government to make progress to help solve solutions, and within that is a commitment to a rules-based approach. Uh, that said. Um, there are a lot of Democratic candidates who are incredibly successful, who play really hard, and who win. Um, you know, Bill Clinton certainly played really hard, and then was very effective uh, in terms of how he, you know, he he actually governed uh, day to day. We have just a short time sure. left, but I'm just curious. You know, in your home, yeah. uh, with your kids and your wife, did did they ever call you on like trying to spin things? And I got a funny story for you. <laughs> so uh, he may he may reprimand me for telling this story. <laughs> so by and I'm not going to use his name because he definitely would get upset with me. But I have a son. I have two of them. I won't <laughs> name which got a one. One son. He got fifty fifty chance, and he was um, running for student government, and uh, and uh, he he ran. I won't even name the name of the school, but. Insert name of a school, make great again, right? Um, and uh, it was sort of a pun. And he came and, you know, my wife was traveling. So he said, can you help? He begrudgingly asked me for help. And we worked <laughs> on the thing. We made our three points at the beginning, came back to our theme, hit our three points at the end, and, you know, made a joke of, of the whole uh, of his bumper sticker. And later on, after I had left, he said to my wife, so, you know, Daddy was actually pretty good at that. I was really surprised. <laughs> You're impressing your kids. You must have had a good political like, career, Chris Lehane. So now I'm getting credit for my kids. So. All right. got to wrap this up. Chris Lehane, thank you Thanks for coming so in. We Thanks really you guys appreciate so much. It. It's a great show. Really fun. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Our leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M. Lagos. That's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. 
And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.